welcome to the show. This is a new experience for us because we are recording an episode and we're also live on Instagram Mm -hmm. to a whole one person. We thought we'd try something a little bit different for our spooky Halloween episode. Interesting, spooky Halloween Mm -hmm. extravaganza. Welcome. Welcome to the Halloween extravaganza. Welcome one and all. (laughs) One and one. Still just one. (laughs) (laughs) It's not changing. No. Yeah, we so we have um we have not just two, but four cases for you mm-hmm. today on this it's a bonanza. special episode. It's a so crime bonanza. We'll be doing two different cases each. But I'm Laura Elise. I'm one of your co-hosts. And my favorite Halloween movie is Hocus Pocus. What about you, Tama? And I am Tama J. My favorite Halloween movie would probably have to be... Either a close day between Halloween itself or Friday the 13th. Mm, both excellent vintage Halloween, choices. Halloween, purely for the scene where he puts a sheet on with the glasses. With the sunglasses? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the, an excellent scene. Are they sunglasses? Yeah, he has the sheet oh, and then the yeah, sunglasses over the top. Sunglasses. Because I made that meme about the conversation between Rachel's mother and Ross, that scene in Friends. Yeah. Oh, we have three people watching us now. That's exciting. We're moving up in the world. Moving on up. Welcome. Mm. Welcome to everyone. Are you excited? Welcome to everyone. Welcome to everyone. I'm ex- inclusive. I nearly said exclusive. Yeah. Are you excited, Tama, for our Bonanza episode? I'm very excited. So these are not just any stories. These are stories that either inspired Hollywood films that um, you know, you watch during Halloween time or Halloween folklore stories, things that mm. happened. There was no real suspect or no real end to it. It was just kind of, um, you know, just like a spooky situation and real uh, interesting cases. And without trying to, somehow both of the people I chose inspired characters in or main characters in different seasons of American Horror Story. Yeah. Which is weird. And it was kind of a waste that we already did Ed Gein because Ed Gein would be perfect for this whole mm. episode, but um no, we're doing different cases and these cases are all very interesting in their I'm own respect. I'm very excited to hear your two. Yes. Are you excited for mine? I'm very excited for yours. All right. Well, Shall we... Oh, the only housekeeping point we have is our merch is out. After weeks of talking about doing it, I actually did it and it's available and you can buy it and the link will be in the show notes. So I think it's pretty cool merch. So I would suggest you go and buy some. Yeah, you can physically buy it now and wear it later. Spread the BSC love. Yeah. But if you do want to follow us on social media, if we ever decide to go live again, although this has kind of been low-key, not a disaster, but I feel like it's not very exciting Thanks, for people Josh, for the, to watch. for the word of the, the code word Parmigiana. of last We're getting some episode. code words live. That's exciting. Yeah. So this episode is not live happening live stream. We're just doing an Instagram just live. Just the intro because we don't want to spoil the whole episode. You've got to wait for tomorrow. Yeah, you got to wait for, for tomorrow for the episode. Babies. But if you want to follow us on social media, if we do ever decide to do a bit more of an organized live stream, you can follow us at, at the BSC podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So with that, 
I may bid adieu to our very short live stream audience and we'll jump into the episode, I say. Keep it short and sweet. Yeah. Short, sweet, simple. See you later, Instagram. Okay. So, I have two and much like, I know we were discussing our cases, we were saying one's quite a bit longer than the other. So, do you think I should start with the long or the short? We'll start with the longer ones. All Why right. not? So, this one is quite messed up. And I've been wanting to do this one for ages. And it's be- the best um, episode for it. Yeah. Well, we're talking about a Guinness World Record holder here. Oh, shit. Mm. Right. So, I'm going to be talking about Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, so, she... Countess Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess. So she was a Hungarian noblewoman who lived between 1560 and 1614, and she's recognized by Guinness World Records as the most prolific female serial killer ever. Wow, okay. So during her trial, her victim count was stated as potentially as high as 650 people. However, this number has been disputed and her number of victims has never officially been confirmed. An agreed upon number is somewhere between 80 and 650. Jeez. So <laughs> That's a bit of a jump. Jesus yeah, Christ. There's a big kind of discrepancy also, in numbers. interesting that Guinness World Records like, we need more world records. Search back the history books of 1500. And find the most kills ever. Mm. Well, I mean, she was pretty, like, badass bitch, but, like, not in the good way. Right. She was just bad and an ass and Mm -hmm. a bitch. (coughs) Pardon me, I sneezed. (laughs) So, a little backstory. Bathory was born into a wealthy family in Hungary to Baron George VI Bathory and Baroness Anna Bathory. Obviously, in 1560, medicine wasn't exactly advanced and Bathory suffered from seizures quite a bit that was likely caused by what we now know as epilepsy, but back then was known as, quote, falling sickness. So historians have speculated that these health problems, as well as the many others she suffered, could have been potentially caused by the inbreeding in her wealthy family because her parents were cousins. As they do. So treatment for falling sickness at the time included rubbing the blood of someone who didn't suffer the illness onto the lips of the person who did. (laughs) Now, this is kind of an important thing to note because it's possible that this kind of a subconscious link between the blood of others and your own health. Some people have speculated that that possible connection at a very young age is linked to her actions later in oh, life. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's also rumoured that her family was particularly cruel, forcing Bathory to watch brutal executions and punishments. An alleged account was a man who was charged with stealing was sewn into the body of a horse while Bathory stood watching and laughing. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, um, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. that's a really rough childhood. So at age 10, she was be- betrothed to 15-year-old Hungarian Count Ferenc... Nad city and I'm so sorry. I it's like judicial. I said it. Hey, but there you, you it, can't whatever I that name can't is. Can't say that name. It's like I it, know how it sounds properly, but my mouth can't make the words. It's sound. like tag for words. You yeah. pass it on to a different one. 
So it's at this time Bathory moves out of her family home and into the estate of her soon-to-be husband and begins learning how to run the household as well as the people within the household. After four years, they're married in a ridiculously extravagant affair which runs over three days and had around 4,500 people in attendance. At the height of the celebrations, her husband gifts his newlywed with a castle. So due to the war, many of their first years of marriage were spent apart with the Hungarian Empire's economy suffering immensely due to the long, drawn-out war with the Ottoman Empire. However, Bathory continues to be showered with gifts by her husbands and their family's wealth grows and grows. When they do manage to spend time together, Bathory and her husband allegedly bonded over their sadistic nature and love of torture. They would often spend time together torturing teenage servant girls who worked for them, including rolling up pieces of paper soaked in oil, placing them between their toes and setting them on fire. Cute. Yeah, just Little, like cute, just cute date things. things. Yeah. yeah. It's a Friday night for just us. Just list that number one of like hashtag cute free date ideas. Yeah. If Take you're ever your stuck, servant girls, roll up pieces of paper soaked in oil and set them on fire. Yeah. It's number torture one your servants to their limits. While it's obvious a lot of her sadistic nature and behavior comes from her husband, there was another person at play who likely shaped the atrocities she committed, and that is Anna Davoilia, who arrived in court roughly 1601. Upon her arrival, Bathory changed, growing much more sadistic and moving from torture to murder. Due to the disposable nature of the peasant class, Bathory had access to a seemingly never-ending supply of servant girls to whom she could torture and murder without suspicion or care. Priests, though, began to grow suspicious when Bathory's attendance requests jumped up, asking them to attend the castle to perform funeral rites for more and more servant girls who had allegedly died of cholera. Records show one priest who was probably sick of attending so many funerals pulled her aside to say, quote, your grace should not have acted so because it offends the Lord and we will be punished if we do not complain to you and criticize your grace. Around the same time that Anna came to court, Bathory's husband begins to fall in ill health. Historians have been unable to figure out the exact nature of, of the illness that kills him, but records show it begins with severe pains in his legs, which eventually leads to paralysis of the legs. And in 1604, almost 30 years after marriage, her husband dies. Right. It was this death when Bathory was aged 44 that seemed to cause the second massive shift in her personality and when her sadistic nature takes full control of her day-to-day life. However, it soon became obvious continually killing and torturing the castle staff themselves was an annoyance as that meant having to train a replacement. So she instead began luring peasant girls from nearby villages to the castle, where after she was done torturing them, they would be thrown over the walls of the castle to then be mauled to death by wolves. Oh, God. It was said that she had several accomplices who would help lure the young women and also participate in the torture. However, it was Anna and a close friend of Bathory's called Dorka that were her closest accomplices and it was alleged that these two women would compete to try and inflict the most pain on victims to achieve Bathory's approval. It was said the timeline of these torture sessions would usually go the same way. A young servant girl would be picked on for a small mistake which could sometimes be as small as missing a stitch while sewing. Bathory would begin physically hitting and chastising the girl before a specific method of torture would be exacted depending on the mistake the girl had made. For example, a sewing mistake would warrant being stabbed repeatedly with long sewing needles. Girls would normally be forced to strip naked before the torture began. 
But it wasn't just physical torture Bathory loved. She also had developed a love and a talent for inflicting psychological torture on her victims as well. One record says that after shoving needles into the ends of one girl's finger, Bathory commented, if it hurts the whore, she can take them out. When the girl did as she was told and pulled the needles out, Bathory took a knife and cut the fingers clean off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Sure. So just like a real asshole. Yeah. It's been recorded that at least once she had also physically bit pieces out of victims' faces. Lucky servants would be let go with wounds. However, on most occasions, the torture would escalate to murder. Most of the time, the girls would be dragged to the torture chambers beneath the main residence, where Bathory would stand by and watch while one of her lackeys did most of the dirty work, which included using pincers to rip off flesh, disemboweling, and forced cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's bad. Okay, that's very bad. So for years, she basically gets away with doing this with absolutely no consequences. However, by 1609, the rumor mill is growing louder and louder with accounts of Bathory's torture. However, no one can do anything. Not only are peasants barely classed as citizens, but they are legally not allowed to formally bring charges against those from the noble class. Some parents would even sell their children to Bathory for a lump sum, Of course, under the guise of becoming a servant in the castle, but if the rumours were to be believed, the parents knew their child may suffer fate worse than death. For sure. Yeah. So by the early 1600s, her death toll has risen so steeply that they're running out of places to bury the dead. Some girls are buried in shallow graves in the castle courtyards, only to be later dug up and eaten by stray dogs. Man, this is just intense. Yeah. Like, this is something that... Just years and years of folklore stories must have been based off of just the whole idea of just someone in power torturing and getting away with it for so long. Mm-hmm. And, and just haunted. no one being like, they literally couldn't do anything yeah, even if like they wanted the to. The whole imagery of like haunted castles, like spirits roaming yeah. the castles and things like that. Like, oof. Mm. So in 1609, one of Elizabeth's closest friends, Anna, dies. And by this stage, all the children she'd had with her husband have all been, you know, wed and moved out of the castle. And so Bathory begins to become lonely and depressed. As well, despite their earlier financial ease, Bathory's debts are quickly rising. It's here one of her other close confidants, who was rumoured around the castle to be a witch, convinces Bathory that she may be able to turn the tide of her financial misfortunes if she turns her sights onto noble women rather than peasants. So this move ultimately ends up being her downfall. So... With this thought in mind, she opens up essentially her own stream of noble victims under the guise of a young girl's finishing school for noble women. To Bathory, it seems a perfect plan. A constant stream of young women whom she can torture and kill as well as tuition fees for the fake finishing school, which will help put her back in good financial graces. However... Unlike the peasant girls, the disappearance of young aristocratic women causes worry in the parents and soon they come looking for their missing daughters. Bathory makes up bizarre excuse after bizarre excuse to explain their disappearances and deaths, including telling parents that children have gone crazy and gone on a mass murder-suicide mission, killing many of the girls at the school and then going on to kill themselves. Jeez. However, no one is convinced of these lies. And, of course, as I said before, the rumours of her torture were pretty rife among the castle, and so the noble women's disappearance has caused for alarm for many of the parents. 
also having to now contend with powerful families as well, Bathory soon begins to unravel. Parents of the missing girls report to King Matthias II and an official investigation is undertaken. The investigation is left up to one of Bathory's late husband's closest friends, who despite having a close relationship with a countess, begins interviewing people around the castle who are really quick to testify of the countess, countess's sadistic nature and her penchant for torture. However, despite hundreds of circumstantial witnesses who reported things like blood-soaked floors and the sounds of screams which would echo through the halls, there are no actual eyewitnesses to the events. The investigator, who by now is convinced of Bathory's guilt, writes to her family asking for their help and they come to a secretive agreement. They will allow the investigation to continue and even help testify against Bathory as long as she won't be put on public trial and if she does go to prison, it will be done quietly to prevent embarrassment to the family. At no stage do they question the accusations being brought against Bathory or try to deny them. So they're probably like, yeah, she crazy. Yeah, she did that shit. She did that. So by December 1610, investigators believe they have enough evidence to charge Bathory, and on New Year's Eve, the investigator and a collection of armed guards convene and hide outside the castle doors where they spot Bathory and her handmaiden, who have come outside of the gates to cast a protective spell on Bathory, as well as a spell to bring the death to the main investigator of her case. Shortly after Bathory returns inside, where the men move towards the door of the castle, they find the mutilated body of a young woman and two more bodies just inside the door. They move inside where screams lead them to one of Bathory's torture chambers where they play witness to some of the unspeakable acts that would be committed in that room. The Countess is immediately arrested and she turns on all her servants, blaming them for all the horrors that have been committed. Bathory is arrested and thrown into the prison of her own castle. Eventually, 306 people, including those who actively participated in the tortures themselves, testify in private against Bathory. Her accomplices see trial on January of 1611, with some of the victims who survived testifying against, against them. And four of her accomplices are found guilty, three are put to death, and one is sentenced to life in prison. Bathory herself was never officially put to trial. She was sentenced to a life of confinement, kept in one of the rooms where she enacted her torture for the rest of her life, only visited by priests. On October 21st, 1614, Bathory complains to guards of cold hands. She goes to sleep and never wakes up. Her body wow. is placed in the Bathory crypt. However, much more recently in 1995, the crypt is open and Bathory's body is nowhere to be found and the location of her skeleton remains a mystery to Whoa, this day. Whoa, crazy. So the crypt's mm. like still there. Yeah, well, it's the, the family crypt, but her her body is her just, been exhumed it's just gone. It's gone. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So despite the fact that she was an absolute... Psycho. Nutter. Yep. For years, there was a rumor that has circulated, and in nearly any article that you read about her, it has this fact in it, which has been basically proven to be completely untrue. And that was that Bathory had an insane bloodlust, and her combined with that and her fear of you know aging and losing her beauty, it was said that she would drain the blood of the young virginal women she would kill and bathe in it to maintain her youth. This, however, has been proven through eyewitness accounts to be entirely false, mainly from 
servant girls who survived the torture who would say that they could see blood would just coat the floors and walls of the torture chambers. So she had no sort of special love yeah. for this. She would happily just let it she spill all over the floor. She wasn't trying to preserve the blood Yeah, at all. she wasn't was trying just, to keep it. Yeah. However, as I said, this sort of false legacy somehow stuck and it's like a folklore thing that any article about Elizabeth Bathory basically yeah. has this whole thing that she bathed in the blood of virgins. Which I mean, is, it's the most attractive um, and it's a great theory story. to come from it. Like, it's, it's that, that's the one thing where if you were to take a ghost story out of it, it's like, that's the whole aspect, the bathing in the blood to try and, like, you know, reduce aging. Yeah. It's a, it's a great story as well. Yeah, for sure. So, obviously, she has inspired basically the whole evil queen trope, particularly mm. that of Snow White, the evil queen from Snow White, where she wants to cut out the heart oh, yeah. of Snow White to right. maintain her beauty. Interesting. So, sort of that whole the aging queen desperate to retain her yeah. power and beauty is basically inspired by Elizabeth Bathory and then this kind of folklore that has followed her of that she would bathe in the blood mm, of virgin. Very interesting. Yeah. Right. But another character that was strongly inspired was another Countess Elizabeth, and that was from American Horror Story Hotel. So that's Lady Gaga's character from that season who plays the owner of this hotel and she's a countess and she's a vampire and she drinks the blood of these young women to like yeah. stay beautiful. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I haven't seen much of American Horror Story, but I remember when you were watching that season, that was the one that I sort of saw um, when you were watching it. Yeah. It was very, um, very hard to watch, like very thrilling. Yeah, but it's kind of crazy that her victim count is like, people are like, eh, it's somewhere not, between 80 yeah. and 650. Well, it's a hard thing. I'm surprised they even have that much detail at all if it's something from the 1600s. You know yeah, what I, mean? I like, think because there were so many people that testified yeah. and so many eyewitness accounts. There would be no way to tell the amount of bodies back then, like... It's just not, no, not and a especially thing. because they wouldn't have been, you know, like officially recorded or anything. No, well, they would. Like they would dumped bodies over to wolves to feed. They would have just, yeah, they would have disposed of bodies yeah. several different ways. You know, it's it's a uh, yeah, crazy. Wow, very interesting. And that is Countess Elizabeth Bathory, mm. aka the Blood Countess, the Spooky Blood Countess. Mm. Just during that story, we've been joined by our middle child, Toffee. Yeah, she's developed a enjoyment. She likes to just come and sit on the couch with us while we record, which is quite sweet because, to be honest, the kitten takes up a lot of our attention and Pi is very vocal, so he gets a lot of attention just through that and she's kind of like the quiet middle child, so it's yeah. nice that she gets a little bit of love. The sweet little baby. Uh, well, I will jump in. I will jump into my story. So you, this one, you know it. You know, you, um, you, there's, I'm really excited. To there's no way one. you you don't know it. It's inspired a movie. It's inspired many stories. I mean, it's one of the. It's one of those stories that got out and just created a plethora of different folklore and campfire stories. Another one that American Horror Story has also covered: the Amityville Horror. Oh, sorry. I was thinking about your other one. You do no. 
Uh, well, they actually, actually did the other one, did they? Uh, the Axeman. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Well, that's my other one, but yes, yeah. Um, well, they know from the title. True. That is very true. Uh, well, no. So, I'm my first one will be the Amityville Horror, which just inspired so many different stories. Kind of like the whole Ed Gein thing with the Norman Bates. Yeah, just, offshoots yeah, and yeah. things. Well, yeah, that's kind of like with Elizabeth Bathory. Like, it wasn't a case of being like... Oh, she inspired that character from exactly, that movie. It's yeah. kind of like she inspired a whole kind of genre of characters, which yeah. is that, you know, evil queen trope. Even like the real life things that that the family claims that happens in the Amityville horror in the house, um, what they claim to have happened is much more terrifying than the happenings yeah. of the movie. Like when you put it into context of like this could have actually happened. What would you call like a TV show about Elizabeth Bathory? Just like the Real Housewives of Hungary, <laughs> like that. Yeah, thing, I guess the Real Housewives of Murder Hungry, Castle. Yeah, Mur- Hungary. Yeah, I'm sure Hungary's made a lot of different strides since then. They've really transformed so. their castle game. You know. I hope, I don't know. I can't. If we have a if we have a crowd in Hungary who listen to the podcast, let us know how your country's doing. We really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, uh, yeah. So just jumping into the Amityville horror in the early morning hours of November 13, nineteen seventy four, in uh, this Amityville house in Long Island, New York became more than just a regular suburban home. It was the infamous crime scene uh, as Ronald DeFeo Jr. skulked the halls with a rifle and killed his parents and four of his siblings in their sleep. He later claimed that there were voices in his head urging him to kill them, and some believe that he was hearing evil spirits residing within the house once listed at 112 Ocean Avenue. Despite the killings, numerous families have since moved in and out of the home and uh, that's now listed as uh, 108 Ocean Avenue. The paranormal occurrences that, that happened there um, spawned a, you know, a bunch of books and films like the Amityville Horror and they've kept tourists just flocking around the house mm-hmm. over the years. Like it's one of the most one of those popular you know horror, horror tourist spots. Um, though the crimes that happened there seemed were all too real, it's widely debated whether or not evil spirits actually inhabited the house and these things actually happened. But, um, you know, we'll be di- we'll di- diving right into that. It's one of the things that you'd never really get an answer. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I encourage you to look up the images as well that are related to the Amityville house because it's just intense. So, in the middle of the night on November 13, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed six of his relatives with a 35 caliber rifle while they were asleep. Parents Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr. Siblings 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew. Though he later confessed to his deeds, DeFeo's def- initial defense was... Um, l- l- he, his later defense would later attempt to enter an insanity plea. DeFeo claimed he was guided by malevolent voices in his head and he couldn't control his behavior. 
It was the, then when uh, the murders themselves spawned the notion that 112 Ocean Avenue itself was haunted and that the DeFeo family was a, uh, victims of the happenings of the house. However, one look at DeFeo Jr.'s life will give you a bit more of an insight to what actually transpired. So, DeFeo's abusive father, his passive mother, and his troubled childhood led to um, a long history of substance abuse as, a, as an adult. He not only lashed out at his father, but once even threatened him with a gun. His parents hoped letting him live at home and within a uh, living at home with his family would um, giving him money here and there that he would barely he would um, eventually get a job and learn to stand on his own two feet. But even that proved a bit too difficult for him. And uh, on the day of question, DeFeo Jr. left his job and went to a bar. He kept calling his home uh, to no answer and complained to the patrons about it and eventually left only to, only to return at 6.30 a.m. when he yelled, quote, You got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. Authorities found all six family members dead in their beds, shot with a rifle around 3.15 a.m. and positioned on their stomachs. There was no sign of a struggle, nor were they drugged. No local reports of gunshots were logged with only DeFeo's dog barking away. DeFeo Jr. was charged, uh, changed his alibi, sorry, alibi um, several times from claiming he was at the bar during the time of the murders to mob hitman Luis Fellini, killing his family while forcing DeFeo Jr. to watch. He eventually confessed that he gunned down his own family and he stood trial on October 14, 1975. Through attorney William Weber tried to enter an insanity plea, the prosecution argued that DeFeo Jr. was a mere drug addict who was well aware of what he was doing that night, and he was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life. It wasn't until after the Lutz family moved into the house in December of 1975, the same year that he was convicted, that the alleged haunting of the Amityville house set in. George and Kathy Lutz believed their purchase of the 4,000 square foot house at $80,000 was an absolute steal, but moved out not only 28 days later after the obvious um, Yeah, there's always a catch. Exactly. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. So, from their reports, green slime oozed from the walls and eyes were peering into the house from outside stretching to foul odors and Kathy allegedly levitating in bed there was a lot of shit happening mm. it was quite the month for them it does make you sort of question the validity of these stories because it's like I mean why would you buy a house and then make that shit up exactly you know what I mean? yeah you, exactly you know it's, it's what's the what's the real thing that you're going to get from that George even claimed that he woke up at 3.15 a.m. each night, the exact time of death of the DeFeo family members. Mm, yeah, that's creepy. In Jay Ensign's 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, was based on these reported events and served as a foundation for the subsequent film of the same name in 1979, which was again remade in 2005. The book became a bestseller while the film grew into a classic and the legends of the horror sort of lived on. Yeah. 
Um, Anson's book used 45 hours of the family's recorded interviews as a basis. And one of the three Lutz children, Christopher Quarantino, uh, confirmed the hauntings happened. However, he said that the events were exaggerated by his stepfather, George Lutz. George Lutz was curious about paranormal activity and actively tried to summon spirits, but had a financial motivation to sell his story to the media due to his family's severe debt. And uh, Weber and DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, uh, DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, said that the haunting was all a quote hoax, which right. he purp- uh, purposely conjured up with Anson while drinking. Um, ultimately, the house remains just that—a house. Um, it's changed hands over the decades, and nothing but prices have really changed. Uh, besides the address changing as well. Mm. Um, today, at present, the Dutch colonial home is nothing to really scoff at with five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, and a boathouse on a canal off the Long Island um, Sound. The house is a nice house. It's a really nice house. Yeah. Uh, despite its appeal after the Lutz family moved out, it went into foreclosure in 1977. It was next owned by James and Barbara Cromarty, the owners of Riverhead Raceway. The Cromatas um, changed the Amityville Horror House address to 112 Ocean Avenue to 108, hoping to keep you know stalkers and tourists yeah. from coming around all the time. And um, after an event, uneventful decade living in its house, they sold it off to Peter and Janine O'Neill in 1987. The O'Neills then sold it in 1997 for $310,000 to Brian Wilson, not that Brian Wilson, not the Beach Boys <laughs> singer, but... Um, Imagine if it was, though. Oh, dude, incredible. In- that'd be insane. Uh, most recently, the house sold for $605,000 in 2017. As for the New Jersey home used in the 1979 Amityville um, Films exterior shots, that was put up on the market in 2011 for $1.45 million. Oof. But they then dropped it to $1.35 million. Still. Just still. Um, when o, when o Dallas Fragoso put the 1920 structure up on the market, she was immediately asked if it was haunted. She explained that ghosts had nothing to do with the sale and that she was merely divorcing her husband, which is unfortunate. <laughs> It's just the ghost of my dead relationship. Yeah. Uh, when asked if she had seen the famous film, Fragoso explained that she only saw parts of it, but her children see it constantly. Ultimately, the appeal of the Amityville house and its related New Jersey home seems largely rooted in the um, exaggerated book and the Hollywood adaptations. Mm. But to this day, horror fans are truly convinced that the haunting still ha- actually happened and they regularly visit the houses hoping to catch a glimpse of a ghost. There you go. And that, my friends, is the true story of the Amityville Horror. Have you seen either of the movies? I've seen the... I think I've seen the 2005 one. Yeah, I think that's the one I've seen with, like, Kate Beckinsale. It's or? the most um, popular one, I believe. Is that her Since, name? Kate Beckinsale? Is that the actress? Probably. Who it? knows? Let us know in the comments. Well, you could just Google it. What's, what's it what is it again? Kate... <laughs> The Amityville Horror Movie. No, but what's her name? Kate Beckinsale. I'm sh- I'm sure it was her. I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong. 
I was going to, I had a thought that came into my head while you were talking and it was an interesting thought and now it's disappeared. I can't see Kate bessing hell anywhere. Okay, well, I was probably it. wrong. Um, if you're talking about the actor in the 2005 film who played Kathy Lutz, her name is Melissa George. Yeah, I was super wrong. And then also Chloe Grace Moretz played Chelsea Lutz. Well, there you go. Very interesting. I was not even remotely close. No, at all. <laughs> <laughs> where did I get but Kate Beckinsale from? Who fucking knows, man? I who don't knows know. where your mind I don't know goes. what happens in my brain some days. That was um that was really interesting. I didn't actually I mean I knew it was inspired by true story. Yeah. But I didn't realize that it was inspired by a true story and like people had actually been murdered in the house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The well, and and it's a, the the idea is that a um the murders happened because the murderer said voices were in his head when you know take that as as you will of the from a, a drug addict yeah but or someone trying to get out of prison exactly on insanity charges but the fact is there's people who actually died in the house so but there's yeah, a whole thing of, of like you know genuine reason to think there's a haunting so um, good one. also just kate bessing's bessing sale becking sale becking sale uh you're probably thinking of her in underworld no, I know that's a completely different movie. Yeah. I'm just getting my actresses mixed yeah, up. Yeah, but you. I remembered the thing I was going like to say before. So I remember this is years ago. I had this weird week yes. where I woke up at the same time every in the middle of the night for like four days in a row, and I remember it just scared the shit out of me. I was like, "What has happened?" At How this creepy time? is that? If that actually genuinely happened, you're like you're waking up at a specific time that everyone died in the house you're living in. Yeah, that's super creepy. Like, that's terrifying. That's super creepy. But I just, like, the house I lived in, no one died in it. Not that you know of, yeah. But, yeah, I remember there was, like, one week where I woke up, because I remember it happened, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and I looked at my phone to be like, oh, it's still, it's like 2.20 or something. Mm. And then it happened the next day, and I looked up, and I was like, oh, it's 2.20. And I didn't really, and then it happened the third day in a row, and I was like, this is weird. Yeah, I mean, for, for that guy, I'd imagine maybe, like, if you're to take what he says as true um, and actually factual, I'm sure it's like a matter of, oh my God, someone was murdered around this time and then your body eventually just gets accustomed to waking up at that time and then it's yeah. every single... It's like, you know, your body has a, has a a clock, essentially. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's very true. No, I really liked that one. Good good, um, good job. Yeah, it seems like Toffee really liked that one as well because she's now purring. She is so cute. She's a very sweet girl. I posted a photo of her on our Twitter if you would like to look at it. Yeah. Her sleeping next to Tama while he records. She's a big softie. A little bit of a softie. So, second story. How are we doing for time? We going good? We killing it? Oh, killing we're it? killing it, mate. Yeah, keep going. We're oh, good. Sweet. So... This one is one that I feel like everyone knows because it's a very infamous story, partly in its own right and partly because, again, American Horror Story made a very famous character out of this person. So just a quick footnote before I get into it. As I was writing my notes, most of the articles simply referred to her victims as, quote, slaves. And I felt super uncomfortable using that terminology. So 
I'll be using the word slave and slavery to explain some of the broader context of this person's upbringing. And then if I use direct quotes from eyewitnesses, and then I'm just going to refer to them as victims because at the end of the day, that's what they yeah, were. Yeah, exactly. They were yeah. victims of something that was horrible. I was just writing my notes and like every fourth word was slave. And I was yeah. like, this makes me feel super, I don't know. Well, the idea is that they were, they were more... There were more than just that. There was more to the identity than just the yeah. fact that they were slaves. But obviously in, you know, the 1800s in the south of America, yeah. the States, it was slavery. Bit of a hairy time. Yeah. So this is another very well-known depraved female torturer and serial killer. And we're jumping forward a few thousand years this time, and then we're going for a little swim across the pond to New Orleans. Ooh. So I'm talking about Madame Delphine Lollerie. So Delphine was a rich socialite who lived in New Orleans and her crimes went pretty much completely under the radar until a fire in her mansion basically brought the whole thing crashing down. So Marie Delphine McCarty, as she was born, was born in New Orleans in 1787. And from what I could find, there's not a lot known about her early life. It just seems like pretty standard life of a wealthy socialite. She was married a couple of times. What is worth noting is that At the time she was born, there was a lot of change happening within the landscape of the wealthy and slavery. So I guess the balance between the wealthy and the owned. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when she was only four, that was when the Haitian Revolution erupted, which is something that sort of made slave owners very wary of you know, rebellion and uprising amongst their households. Yeah, yeah. Slaves. Delphine's uncle was also killed by one of his slaves during an attempted revolution. So she's basically grown up with this mindset that these people are evil and they're yeah. snakes who will attempt to usurp you. So Delphine had several children with various husbands, two of which died under non-suspicious circumstances. And it's during her third marriage that she buys a property at 1140 Royal Street in New Orleans, which is where the infamous Lullery Mansion would be later built in 1832, complete with quarters where the victims were forced to live. So public accounts of Delphine's treatment of her victims seem mixed. While one person says that they appear outwardly singularly haggard and wretched, others comment that in public, Delphine seems to be very polite when it comes to talking to people of color, and she seems to be, quote, conscientious of her slave's health. During the years of 1830 to 1834, documentation supports the deaths of 12 of Delphine's victims within this time period. However, cause of death was not documented And so much of the goings-on within the house in this time remain kind of shrouded in mystery. However, at one point, rumours around town become so widespread of her mistreatment of these people. A lawyer is sent to the home to investigate. However, the lawyer reports no signs of mistreatment, and so basically that doesn't really go any further. But the rumours don't go away. One neighbor recounts seeing a young girl of about eight falling to her death from the roof of the Lollery Mansion while she attempted to escape a beating from a whip at the hands of Delphine herself. Another witness further elaborated and supported this account, saying that the young girl had been brushing Delphine's hair and upon hitting a knot in her hair, Delphine had turned on her, whipping her and chasing her around the home, eventually chasing her up the spiral staircase to the roof where she falls to her death. Mm. 
So it's this point the family is officially investigated and found guilty of illegal cruelty, punishment for which is the forfeit of nine slaves. So it's worth noting, while slavery itself was not outlawed in Louisiana, they had like a weird standard, I guess the word, that yeah. of how you could treat these people that you forcibly it's enslaved. Just, it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre that you're like, forcing someone to work for you against their will, that's, that's cool. That's okay. But like, we do have standards in terms of... Yeah. So it's a very like strange moral compass they seem yeah, to Yeah, they're treating human beings like puppies and dogs at this stage essentially. Basically, they're being treated yeah. like animals, like, like you livestock. can own this but yeah. you can't be cruel against it. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah, it's a bit fucked up. The whole slavery trade thing in the south. It's such a weird time in history that you're like how did yeah, this happen? Just some cute systematic racism, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So, despite being made to forfeit nine of her slaves, she basically makes an agreement with family members that they will buy back the slaves she's had to forfeit and then simply give them back to her. So, she gets wow. them all back. They're all eventually returned to the Lollary home. Great system you have here, guys. Yeah. Rumors also persist that Delphine's daughters do not share her cruel streak and would attempt to free any imprisoned slaves for which they would also be beat. It's on April 10th, 1834, that the depravity of the household really comes to light. So a fire starting in the kitchen breaks out in the mansion and police and firefighters rush to the premises. They enter the home where they find a 70-year-old woman who was the cook chained by her ankle to the stove. Delphine has abandoned the woman to the flames while she's busy attempting to save her clothes, furniture, and jewellery from the flames. Far out. The woman tells police that she'd started the fire as a suicide attempt. She tells police officers she fears punishment by Delphine and says that any slaves who are taken to the uppermost level of the home are never seen again. It's at this point rescuers go upstairs to the attic after rumors start circulating in the crowd that's gathered outside the mansion that everyone's noted that none of Delphine's, you know, they call them servants... Yeah. An eyewitness account calls them servants. Right, but they're not exactly. They start they? talking that none of Delphine's servants have come out of the home. So rescuers go back into the home. They go upstairs to the attic above the kitchen. And this is where they find many people kept behind this locked door. So one bystander reports to the New Orleans Bee that they found, quote, seven slaves more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity oh. to the next. The slaves claim to have been imprisoned there for some months. One of the bystanders who enters the home is Judge Jean-Francois Connage. I'm so sorry if I pronounce that. Connage. So incorrectly. She was quoted as finding a woman forcibly wearing an iron collar and another elderly woman with a wound on her head so deep she's unable to walk or talk. When Delphine's husband is questioned about the state of the people within the attic, he simply says, quote, Some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to dictate laws and meddle with other people's business. Wow, what a charming lady. Yeah. Further accounts of what is found inside the quarters state the victims found were severely emaciated, showed signs of being flayed to the bone with whips, and were bound in restrictive positions, and some were co wore collars with spikes on the inside, which prevented wearers from moving their heads. God. 
When news spreads about the atrocities that they see in the home, the next day a crowd gathers outside the residence where local citizens begin attacking the property, essentially leaving it in ruins. In a disturbing turn of events, the local paper reports the victims are taken to the local police station, and this I found so odd, where they're available for local viewing, with as many as 4,000 people attending to, quote, convince themselves of the sufferings. Okay. But why? Yeah. What the fuck is happening? So after the events of the fire and the discovery of her depravities, Delphine flees to Paris where the rest of her life is really poorly documented. Like you just can't find anything. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Which she probably was laying low. However, it appears that she stayed in Paris until her death in 1842. While the original home no longer stands and has since been rebuilt, there are still residences on the original Lollary Mansion home. Rumoured to be one of the most haunted houses in the world, it's been closed to the public since 1932. Wow. Now, the issue with Delphine Lollary in folklore and popular culture is that the state that the victims were found in seems to have gotten progressively worse and more violent in sort of books and biographies without actual any clear sources or support. Right. So not saying that what she did wasn't disgusting because it was. It's just take with it what you will. it's been, seems to have been really kind of blown out from this horrible thing to like this weird boogeyman cult status. Okay. So the first major case of this was a book by... Jeanne de Levine, which was called Ghost Stories of New Orleans, and it was released in 1946. In this, the author alleges that inside the home, they found, quote, male slaves stark naked chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingers pulled off by the roots. Others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together, intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists, there were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. So we've really gone from, like... Bad. Bad to, like, To what neck in the level. fuck is happening. So there's no sources that are cited for this at all. So it could very well be true or it could be complete farce that's been made up in order to sell books. Yeah. Another book, Journey into Darkness, which was released in 1998 and was written by Kalia Smith, includes even more gory details. Victim who had obviously... this Sorry, this is a direct quote. Victim who obviously had her arms amputated and her skin peeled off in a circular pattern, making her look like a human caterpillar. Another who'd had her limbs broken and reset at odd angles so she resembled a human crab. Again, all of these allegations are unsighted and unsourced, which makes it really difficult when researching her case to kind of separate fact from fiction. Again, I'm not trying to downplay the actual confirmed crimes in any way, but it really seems like there's been a few authors that have taken some creative liberties yeah, with the facts. We've all known this to happen before. I mean, just look at the most recent um, case of Chris Watts where that author read that book about him and it was like, yeah. where's your proof of this? him ever saying this? Yeah, exactly. You know. So within pop culture, Delphine Lollary's sort of 
shadow that she's cast on pop culture. There is currently a, a horror movie franchise in development by the same writers that wrote The Conjuring Universe. Oh. So they're writing a film franchise about it. Principal photography was due to commence this year, according to an article released in 2019. However, it's likely that this hasn't happened because of COVID. Most likely, yeah. Again, most noticeable was American Horror Story Coven, which is where Kathy Bates plays Delphine Lollery. So in the series, her character is incredibly sadistic. Like you go up to her room in the show where, again, you see like men kept in cages with spikes so they can't move, men with their intestines pulled out with their eyes gouged out. And in the television series, one of Delphine's daughters falls in love with one of the victims and then the victim has a um, like an ox's head sewn onto his own. Oh, And right. then in the story which kind of, I guess they've taken creative liberties because she sort of did kind of disappear. But in the American Horror Story, she is buried. Uh, a voodoo priestess puts a spell on her so she'll never die. And then she's buried alive under the remains of the house. Oh, that is intense. That's a yeah. way to go. So wow. that's kind of her mentions in pop culture american horror story has a great love of using real serial killers and cult leaders to influence yeah, their characters it's one of my most intriguing things about the series is their their calls to actual historical aspects yeah, of things that have happened i can't remember what i'm going blank now but in american horror story hotel there's a night uh devil's night where because the whole concept of hotel is if if you die in the hotel, you live forever there as a ghost. Right. Or if you just are a ghost, you can go to the hotel and people can see you. So the owner of the hotel who's inspired by H.H. H. Holmes and his murder castle, he has this thing called Devil's Night. And there's one episode where it's uh, Aileen Warnos, Jeffrey Dahmer, the Zodiac Killer, Richard Ramirez... Uh, and I think Ted Bundy, who all, like, gather to have this night where they, like, sit and have dinner together. Wow. It's a very weird concept, but it's really cool, like, seeing them come up with these... Yeah, some of the most notorious rippers yeah. and killers in our time. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that is uh, Madame Delphine Lollery. Yeah, a real piece of work. Yeah, they can't. They both were really. Yeah. <laughs> wow, very interesting. Um, it kind of makes me want to watch that series of American Horror Story now. But I got, was watching a few episodes of it, and it was just I don't know, a bit much for me. It's not that bad. I mean, you don't like jump scares. Yeah, I will I say like it's not a real. It's not a real jump scare type of series. The no, first. Yeah. I reckon the first and second season are kind of jump scary, but the other one's not as much. Coven is a great series. Mm. That's all about witches. That's the one with Lollary, and it also includes voodoo magic in it, which is very cool. Well, speaking of American Horror Story, you were saying my next case inspired 
He is in Coven. Something. Yeah, he's in Coven, right. His story is in is in Coven. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I am talking about the Axemen of New Orleans. It's also going off of New, the New Orleans story that you oh, yeah. told. So we're, yeah, we're well, staying in um, New Orleans, this one. In American Horror Story, he comes back once a year. His ghost comes back once a year and can haunt New Orleans. Interesting, mm. right. Well, that's the kind of um, thought off of this whole f- this whole case that happened in the early 1900s is that his ghost lives on and he, he, he like that's like a genuine folklore thing is that he lives on in New Orleans. So here's the thing. Over 100 years ago, 101 to be exact, in 1919, March 19, funny enough, New Orleans was a different place. Yeah. It changed forever. All of the dance clubs and bars in New Orleans during this time were filled to capacity and had bands playing jazz at parties and hundreds of houses across town. The city, which was known as obviously the birthplace of jazz, didn't play music out of love, but instead played it out of fear. Three days prior on March 16, the uh, one of the local newspapers in New Orleans published a letter by a serial killer known only as the Axeman. He'd already killed before and he threatened to do it again on March 19 at 12.15 a.m. if he discovered any household not playing jazz music at the time. When it came to when it comes to you know unsolved cases, you know, Zodiac, um, Alphabet Killer, you know, Jack the Ripper, this is one of those cases that's sort of up there with them, but not as well known. Mm. You know what I mean? It's one of those cases where it's a very bizarre one. It's a very it bizarre just case. Kind of disappears exactly, and 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 it's not as well known as all these other cases. Even as, even like the Golden State Killer. Um, however, those living in New Orleans will surely know of the story. Um, his attacks led six people dead and another six seriously severely injured. Like Jack the Ripper, he wasn't afraid to taunt police over time and over a period of around 18 months from May 1918 to October 1919, he had the Big Easy wrapped up in a state of fear. To this day, the murderer's identity is not known and his crime spree seems to have mysteriously stopped as mysteriously as it started. On the 9th of May 22nd, 1918, Italian grocery store Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were discovered on lying in their bed in a pool of blood. Joseph's brother, who lived next door, were the ones who found the body, uh, and Joseph and Catherine had their throats cut with a razor blade whilst they slept. Their heads had been bashed in with an axe. Catherine's throat was so deeply cut that it was almost severed from her shoulders. The killer had entered the property by chiseling a lower wooden panel out of the back door. After the killing had happened, the axe was left in the bathroom and the razor dispensed of in the neighbor's garden. No valuable valuable items or money was taken, eliminating burglary as motive, and the number of there were a few arrests that 
um, subsequently happened, including one of the other Maggio brothers. However, all of them were released due to lack of evidence. The only single clue that could be found was a cryptic message written in the chalk on the pavement uh, a short distance from the murder scene. The message read, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Police think that the message referred to a Mrs. Tony Schiambra, who was one of a number of uh, grocers of Italian descent, killed and attacked during the period of 1911 to 1912. The majority of these those victims had fallen foul of an axe-willing man who had entered their properties at night by knocking out a panel on the back door, in a similar fashion. If these early attacks were indeed connected, the axeman had been using this whole method or this signature, as John Douglas recalls uh, it as, for quite a while. Uh, a month after the Maggios were killed, the axeman struck again. On June 27th, Baker John Zanka went to make a delivery to a grocery store owned by Louise Besumer. Uh, realizing something was not quite right, Zanka went to the door at the rear of the store where he knew Besumer and his supposed wife, Harriet, were residing. Zanka discovered the Besumers covered in blood but still alive. The Besumers had been hacked out by a man wielding an axe who again knocked out the panel on their back door and entered their bedroom whilst they were sleeping. The axe again, which actually belonged to Lewis, was found in the bathroom with no valuables taken of the property. Suspects were round up again, similar fashion, including an employee of Lewis, but all were released, released due to lack of evidence. Uh, in a bizarre set of offense that followed the attack, it was discovered that Harriet was not Lewis's wife, but his mistress. Oh, yeah, saucy. naughty boy. The media had a field day and a frenzy followed just um, after the whole thing. Can I just thing. say what a terrible way for your affair to come out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nearly dying from a fucking axe-billing murderer. Like, and you get outed as a cheater. Yeah, crazy. Not a great day for you. Two months later, Harriet unfortunately died due to complications resulting from the injuries she sustained in the attack. However, before she passed away, she pointed the finger of guilt towards Luis, claiming that he was also a German spy. Mm. Investigators okay. found this hard to believe uh, that this was the case since Luis had suffered a fractured skull, something that would have done he would have had to done to himself if he was guilty of attacking Harriet. Yeah. So, you know, nice try, but no. <laughs> Nine months after later, sorry, a jury felt the same way and Luis was not found guilty of the attack. The next attack would come in August of that same year. This time it was a pregnant woman named Mrs. Schneider. After a long day at work, her husband returned home to find his wife covered in blood. Her scalp had been cut open and some of her teeth had been knocked out, but she was still... Alive. After a couple of days, Mrs. Schneider regained consciousness in the hospital and recounted seeing a dark figure looming over her as she awoke from a nap. She remembers seeing an axe, and luckily the trauma did not impact her baby daughter, who she soon gave birth to a short while after, which is very fortunate. Mm. The attack on Schneider represented a little de small detail change from the usual Axeman signature. She was neither Italian nor a grocer. So if you've been paying attention, all the victims yeah. so far have either been Italian immigrants uh, or something to do with a grocer. Uh, so, you know, 
it's thought that you know if anyone in the city now was a, was a, was could become a target there's either he's changed his modus uh, uh, his signature um or there's a copycat killer out there mm. which if you know anything about crime and murderers rarely if ever do murderers change their signature yeah so they change their you know their methods their ways that they um do certain things but there's always one key signature that never changes yeah 5 days after the schneider attack the Axeman returned to his preferred target, attacking an elderly Italian grocer in his sleep. Pauline and Mar- Mar- uh, Mary Bruno awoke to the sound of um, a commotion happening next in the next door room to them, which was occupied by their uncle, Joseph Romano. Upon entering, they saw Joseph had been struck in the head and was bleeding pretty badly. The... Assailant fled the room, and the woman described him as a dark-skinned, heavy-set, and um, wearing a dark suit with a slouch hat. Just like the other attacks, the attacker had chiseled a panel out the back door to gain entry, and again, no items of value were taken. Mm. Two days later, Joseph unfortunately died from his wounds. New Orleans was now in a fucking disarray. The media was going crazy, and... and in the wake of the Romano killing, it's just pandemonium. Yeah. Newspapers were reporting on armed men keeping watch over their family whilst they slept. Uh, it was a troubling time to, to be an, an Italian immigrant or just an mm. Italian um, American at the time. And, um, you know, this was just made all the worse. And many Italian men would stay up all night to try and attempt to protect their family. Uh, so everyone was living with the now constant fear of the Axeman attacks and... What was made worse was that the police had no clues, no solutions as to who the killer was. So all uh, a lot of things about the case made little to no sense. Firstly, why did the Axeman always leave the chisel he used to pull out the wooden door panels? It was always left behind. Why did he always rely on an axe found at people's houses, never bringing his own? Uh, although many people he attacked were Italian grocers, some weren't. Therefore, what connected those victims together? The Axeman would seemingly take a short hiatus from killing, maybe to get, p- take up some light reading or something, I don't know. Yeah. Returning once again seven months later on the 10th of March, 1919. Nothing about his signature had changed. The victims were a family of grocers called the Cortimiglias. The Axeman entered the house via his trademark chiseling out the back door panel. He then used an axe taken from the victim's household again and also stole no valuables from the, after the attack. This was perhaps the Axeman's worst attack yet. Rosie Cordomiglia awoke to the sight of her husband Charles fighting the Axeman. It was a fight that he would ultimately lose, taking multiple blows to the head and suffering a fractured skull. The Axeman would then turn his attention to Rosie, who was cradling their two-year-old daughter in her arms. The axe, unfortunately, came down on both of them, killing the child instantly and fracturing Rosie's skull. After he heard the screams coming from the 
Gotemiglia's household, fellow grocer Lolando Giordano rushed to his neighbor's property and alerted the authorities. Doing a really good job with all these Italian names. Thank you. I'm just going to say that. I'm trying to flex my uh, Italian pronunciations. Um, both Charles and Rosie would make a f- full recovery, although Rosie pointed the finger of guilt at the very man who tried to save her, Giordano. Uh, so, you know, what the fuck? Uh, being a rival grocer, Rosie pinned the blame on Giordano and his son, Frank. The two men were charged with murder and found guilty. What? Frank was to hang, Giordano's to serve life in prison. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, Charles adamantly denies his wife's claims and reports the then reports state that he divorced her shortly afterwards. So you know, making the best out of a, a shitty situation, I guess she is. What a dick! Yeah. So uh, nearly a year later, Rosie recanted her testimony, saying she gave it out of spite and jealousy. And the two men were released, and the killing of Cortemiglia's baby daughter went to the axeman's tally. A few days later, after the attack on the Cortemiglias, the Axeman decided to write to the Times uh, Picayune newspaper. And sorry, I'm not too sure how to pronounce the uh, exact newspaper title. Uh, the letter headed said Hell, and it was addressed to Esteemed Mortal. Very cute, you know, um, title. The Axeman would go on to describe himself as quote, a demon from the hottest hell who had a, quote, close relationship with the angel of death and bragged about how he could kill thousands more if he wanted to. He taunted the foolish police, declaring that he'd never be caught and he was not a human being. He then proceeded to threaten the entire city. To be exact, at 12.15 um, on new uh, a.m. Uh, on Tuesday night... I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Jazz it out. <laughs> right? You know? <laughs> Essentially, That's if you don't jazz it the night. fuck up, you're dead. When the clock struck 12.15 on March 19, the city of New Orleans was probably one of its most alive and noisiest as people made damn sure to jazz it the fuck out. It's like 50 million different jazz bands. Yeah. A local composer, Joseph Davila, even created a song for that night entitled The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, which later went on to become a huge hit. Oh, there you and, go. Um, feel free to listen to it. Silver lining. We will def- yeah. Uh, although it's doubtful that every household that night genuinely blared jazz music out in the early hours, the Axeman was clearly satisfied with what he heard and not a single attack happened that night. In fact, the rest of the spring and most of the summer would pass before another axe was wielded. In early August, the Axeman would resume his attacks with the exact same uh, MO. Grocer Steve Bolker was attacked whilst he was sleeping. The Axeman cracking his head open with his 
weapon of choice. Again, nothing was stolen. The backdoor panel was once again removed. Boca just recovered, but couldn't remember any details of the attack. One month later, on the 3rd of September, teenager Sarah Lawman was attacked during the night and suffered severe head injuries as well as a few missing teeth. A bloody axe was left on the front lawn. Like Boca, Lawman couldn't remember or recover a single thing that happened that night. <clears throat> the attacker came in through the window, not the back door of Lawman's house. And this is a very interesting detail, leading a lot of people to think that this was not the Axeman, but in fact a copycat. Then in October, the Axeman attacked again for what would become his official and thought final slaughter. Mm. Mike Pepitone. Grocer and father of six was the Axeman's chosen target. Mike's wife awoke to the sounds of a struggle coming from the next door room where her husband resided. Blood was splattered across the majority of the room and Mike lay in a pool of his own blood. He would shortly die soon after from the injuries sustained to his head. Mrs. Pepitone claimed to see two men fleeing the scene. Apart from the additional person, everything else about the event made sense to point it towards the Axeman attacks. And just like that, it was it. The Axeman was never seen or heard of again, and much like the spirit he claimed to be, he simply vanished into thin air. The true identity of the killer would remain one of the crime's greatest unsolved mysteries. Hmm. Here's where we get into the theories. The suspects. Okay. Now, this first theory is simply called the Black Hand. So, since the majority of the Axeman's attacks were on Italian-American grocers, it's led some to believe that they were all victims of an early form of mafia called the Black Hand. Black Hand crime was a name given to an extortion method used in Italian neighborhoods at this time. Therefore, the murders could potentially be linked to unpaid extortion debts. Okay. However, the Axeman frequently left suspects alive, which many mafia experts believe would not have been the case if they were had been true black hand attacks. Mm. In a similar vein, many Sicilian immigrants to America at the time had a deep distrust of the authorities, which led them to take disputes in their own hands and settle them the old-fashioned way, otherwise known as the Vendetta. The Vendetta could well have been the reason behind a number of the attacks. Uh, the second theory is Joseph Mumphrey. Mumphrey is the only legitimate suspect to have ever been linked to the real identity of the Axeman. Jeffrey led, led a blackmailing gang in New Orleans and targeted specifically Italian-Americans. In December okay. 1920, a year after the Axeman had struck his last victim, Mike Pepitone, Mumphrey himself was shot dead by the window of Pepitone in Los Angeles. Mm, so that would explain why the widow of uh, Peppertone. Sorry, uh, Mrs. Peppertone claimed Mumphrey was the axeman and remembered seeing him run from the bedroom the night her husband was killed. Mumphrey served time in prison, and the dates apparently coincided between 1912 and 1918 when the axeman attacks stopped. Oh, they resumed the same time Mumphrey was a free man. He left New Orleans after the killing of Mike Pepitone, uh, again explaining why the Axeman seemingly disappeared after 1919, also being that he died. Yeah. 
However, recent research into the period has failed to find any evidence of a man named Joseph Mumphrey being attacked or killed in New Orleans, leading some to believe that this was pure urban legend. Okay. So, you know. The third theory is that of the copycat killers, which we kind of go into a bit in the actual story. Um, The Axeman had the very distinct signature. Not all of the killings seem to follow this signature to a teen, leading some to believe the Axeman was, in fact, several people who may or may not have been working together to terrorize New Orleans. Yeah. So it could have just been a very big coincidence that Mm. people were dying in a similar fashion. Uh, And the the fourth theory, theory, of course, is that of the ungodly demon. His ability to appear in people's houses in the middle of the night and vanish just as easily had some believing that the Axeman was indeed what he claimed to be in his letters, the worst spirit that that ever existed either in fact or realm of fancy. So if you're a believer of those things, you know, could have very well been that. Yeah, I like the last one the best. Yeah. But, you know, as you can probably tell, it, it, the that whole story, and uh, I'm sure if you live in New Orleans or you, you are in America and you've been to New Orleans, you've probably heard of the stories surrounding the Axemen um, mm. murders. You know, it's just such a uh, an interesting case because much like the Zodiac or... Any other unsolved case, it's just, you know, what happened? Yeah, well, it makes you wonder. And it's like kind of like the Black Dahlia where there's just no real physical evidence to exactly to back it up. There's so theories. It will probably remain unsolved forever. Yeah. There's theories that like, seem to make sense, you know, like the Black Dahlia. Yeah. And you go, oh, that would make sense. But nothing that really links nothing them to together. Nothing to support it, yeah. There's also in the 19, early 1910s to 1920s, like it's just not a very good time for forensic evidence. And, yeah. You know, it's yeah. a, it's so a true. difficult time to really piece things together. Mm. Well, there you have it. That's my story of the Axeman wielding murderer in New Orleans. Yeah, we had two New Orleans ones. That was yeah. good. We did indeed. That was our Halloween episode. Yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed the Halloween episode. We thought it would end up lasting super long. Longer. But it seems to have been lasting as long as uh, any of our Well, I think I was probably subconsciously trying to condense my notes out of fear of making it too long. Yeah. Which may have ended up being too short. But these things happen, you know. Yeah, um, four cases, four very interesting cases, four cases that have um, real horror-esque ties mm. around them, inspired countless horror stories, camp- campfire stories and folklore stories. And, you know, it's a very, f- they're very fitting cases for a Halloween special. We'll have to watch American Horror Story Coven now. Yes. Because that has Dolphin Lollery and the Axeman in it. Great. I want to see that. And it's not jumpy. At all, I promise. Cool. Perfect. It's very. It's my favorite season. Great. Easy. I'm done. Let's mm. do it. Um, we hope you guys are enjoying your spooky Halloween. Yeah. We don't... We had Halloween plans. We were going to a Halloween party. I was very excited. I had the best costume sorted. I was so keen to do it. And then we had a bit of a scheduling conflict. So, unfortunately... 
we can no longer attend the Halloween party. Yeah. But we're very excited to attend our one of our very close friends. It's his first birthday in Australia. Yeah. So that will be lots of fun. So happy birthday, Joe. You if son of a bitch making us this, miss out on fucking Halloween. You dick. You Absolute English dog. dick. What do they call them in England? Spotted dick? Spotted dick, is that yeah, a thing? Yeah, it's like a food or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Spotted dick, you eat a spotted dick? Yeah, I think right. it's like a sausage. <laughs> really? Yeah, I think so. What? I could be Sausages so wrong spotted. about spotted. I don't know. I could be so, so wrong about that. Look it up. Well, maybe I will. I'm also going to tell people to eat a spotted dick from now on as like my new insult. But yeah, I remember the first time I heard that and I was like, why? Why would you call it that? And why would you want to eat that? Some people find it. Appetizing. Here we go. Spotted just... dick is a traditional British pudding, traditionally made with uh, suet. Was that suit? Soot? Uh, suet? No idea. No idea what that is. Dried fruit and often served with custard. Non-traditional variants include recipes that replace the suet with other fats, or that include eggs to make something similar to sponge cake. Oh, so it's sweet. Cake. Yeah, it's a sweet cake. It doesn't. Is it just me, or does like spotted dick just not sound like something that would be sweet? It oh my sounds God. like a savory dish to me. <laughs> my <What>? God! <laughs> Whoa! Um, so, just going off of the the same pretense of weird names to call food. Yeah, there is a dish called faggot. Huh. from the UK. Well, there you go. Faggots are meatballs made of either made from minced offcuts. And offal, especially oh. pork together with herbs for flavouring and sometimes added breadcrumbs. That sounds disgusting. It is a traditional dish in the United Kingdom, especially South and Mid Wales and the English Midlands. And I'm looking at recipes revolting. right now for classic British faggots, <laughs> which I didn't think I'd be reading today. Oh, dear. Isn't it so weird how, like... Language has evolved to something that, like, used to be called a dish is now a derogatory word for a game. Yeah. So strange. It's bizarre to me to be looking at a recipe for faggots with onion gravy. Is it spelled the same? Yeah, exactly the same. That's so strange. Language is bizarre. Like, it really is. That's like if you found a a fucking pie dish that was just simply called nipple fart. (laughs) You're like, what? I'm going to make one. I'm going to invent that. Come wow. try my dish nipple fart. UK has some very interesting foods. Yeah, look, I I don't wanna I don't wanna know what spotted dick you've been eating. Me? No, the oh, UK right, people. Right, the UK people. Yeah, don't I don't wanna know the origins Who of the spotted calls dick. Food spotted dick. I just I think it's like spotted Richard. Like dick is in Richard. But why not call it Spotted Richard or Spotty Richard? That sounds kind of cute, something I would consider eating. Yeah, but also like a dish named after what is also called for a bundle of sticks. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound very appetizing. Yeah. Anything that ends with ot just doesn't sound that tasty to me. I can't think of anything else that ends with ot now. Like... Any, I don't know if any food dishes. Donut. Donut. <laughs> Donut. Eat this. It's probably disgusting. Mm. I don't know. Well, thank you for joining us on our Halloween episode. I probably, I'd say, 
Are we going to do like our normal shit talking outro? Yeah, we just gonna... absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah? we got okay. time. We All can right. do it. Easy. Let's do it. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk about um, how Halloween about spotted dicks. Yeah, and not the good kind. What? Yeah, is I there it. any kind of good kind? Anyway, depends. I'm not going to touch on that. Yeah. Um, how, let's if your talk about dick how, is spotted, go see a doctor. Yeah, please go see a doctor. That's not a, a good thing. We can talk about how shite Halloween actually is in Australia was and how it's not fair. going to just oh, really? go into that. Actually, so cause... my disappointment with Australian Halloween first stemmed when I watched, like I said at the beginning of this episode, my favorite Halloween movie is Hocus Pocus. It first stemmed when I watched Hocus Pocus for the first time and I was like, man, that looks like so much fun. Like you go out with a bunch of other kids, you dress up, you walk around to people's houses and you get free lollies. And then my mum was like, it's not really a thing in Australia. And I forced her to let me do it. And the house we lived in at the time was like <laughs> on kind of a super dangerous road. So it was just like me and one of my friends and mum came along like trying to navigate this road with cars going past at like 80 kilometers an hour. And it was like me dressed in a sheet as a ghost. Yeah. Like I wanted Halloween to be a thing so badly when I was seven, my seventh birthday, I had a birthday party. It was costume and the, the theme was spooky. And we had it in the basement because we had a basement in that house we lived in at the time. And I had like Halloween decorations and like fake spider webs, and I went as a skeleton. My dad wore a scream mask, and it was great. But nice. that's how bad I wanted Halloween to be. Thing I was like, you know what? I'm gonna make You're gonna it a make thing. Halloween. I'm gonna make my birthday Halloween. Yeah, and and for those in America and not in Australia, it it has in the most more recent it's years getting it's, bigger. It's become more of a thing. Over the years, it's taken many, many strides to become more popular. And I think it's literally just the change in generations. Yeah. As, like, people in our generations and the generations above us have children, they're wanting to celebrate it. Yeah. So I think as millennials get older and have start to be the ones that have kids, they're yeah. like, um, excuse me, why are we not celebrating this holiday where we get to dress up in cool costumes and give out lollies to children and like see the look of pure joy on their yeah. face? Like, why would we not want to celebrate that? These children will not n- never know the struggle we had to go through to pave the way for them. Because the traditional meaning of Halloween is, I may be so <clears throat> wrong about this, but it's it's Day of the Dead for within Mexican culture. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's a, a I think day it's a that different... families honoured their Hall- the dead. I, I don't know about Halloween specifically, but the Day of the Dead Mexican celebration is a completely different thing. But I think Halloween's based off of that. Right. But yeah, um, it's slowly becoming more of a thing here and I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, like basically all Halloween meant for us Australian kids growing up is seeing it in movies and thinking how fun it is and wanting to do it, but you don't have any friends to do it with because no one wants to do it. And um, as the years went on, more and more people started doing it, but it was very like minimal. You'd get like people walking past the house and coming up and they'd be like trick or treat and you'd be like, I don't have any fucking candy, dude. It's on a Saturday for us this year though. Yeah. Uh, It used to be on school school nights and stuff as well. That was the crappy thing. All it meant for me growing up was I had to clean egg off my balcony. 
Oh, that's not cool. Because every year people just egg our house. Yeah. A quick history lesson for everyone. Go for it. So the tradition of Halloween originated with the ancient ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honor all saints. Soon, All Saints Day incorporated some of the traditions of Samhain. The evening before was known as All Hallows' Eve and later Halloween. Interesting. So there you go. It's like a Celtic pagan yeah. thing. Yeah, the Day of the Dead is a different thing. It's basically celebrating those who have passed, I believe. And, and yeah. then the, the idea is like the painted skulls and everything. Very interesting um, uh, holiday. Um, Halloween, yeah. I can't believe it's actually happening you i can, can't you believe can, it's fucking november you can see the the um the changes over the years in the way halloween decorations are stored in supermarkets yeah like over the years it's like little tiny booth for like and a, now it's like a big thing if, as soon as that. it hits like october it's like a whole oh, freaking aisle yeah. dedicated to halloween decorations webs and shit everywhere well, we did and, a big halloween party last year it was lots of fun yeah it was great uh, it was amazing um you know i wish we, we could do it again sexy but... bob the builder oh yeah i did and do i that. dressed up as guy fier which really just sums up our relationship yeah. right there <laughs> i think in our past relationships I, the, the, the Bob the Builder one was the first one I genuinely gave Tried, effort into. Yeah. The, over our, our relationship, I've seen you dressed up as Jack Skellington. Yeah. Uh, Morticia. Morticia. Guy Fieri and Velma. From Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Velma, was that was a good one. It just really sums... Yeah. As a, and I've been... Jack Sparrow, myself, and Bob the Builder. Sexy Bob the Builder. Yeah, look, it's going to take a couple more years for me to forgive your weak-ass costume to my birthday party. Not this year, but last year. That was pathetic. Was that the 80s or 90s one? Yeah, it was, was the it? 90s one. You put on a cool <coughs> jacket and you were like, yeah, call it a day. And I was like... To be it's... fair, I, th- I did. There was an attempt to get a costume, but it didn't work out. Much like the first Halloween party we ever celebrated together where you dressed up as, I think that was the oh, Jack Oh, Britney Skeleton. Spears. That was the other one that um, you see me dressed I up as. I did try to dress up as Jason Voorhees one time, but we couldn't, we couldn't find a hockey the mask. mask. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So, it wasn't really my fault, but... Your Jack Sparrow was not bad, though. No. We we made do with what, what we had. We were very poor... Uh, Poor uni, uni students. students, so... And Tama didn't know because, odd fact about me, I am very allergic to face paint. But I was very committed to being Jack Skellington. So covered not only my whole face, but my neck in face paint to do the face. And Tama was wondering why all night I was trying not to touch my face and I wasn't like smiling or didn't seem happy. I was like, it's because my skin yeah. is melting off. If you look at any of the photos, she's just fucking bug eyeing the camera. Yeah, just no smiles whatsoever. And then I had like a red rash on my face for the next week. Yeah, that was bad. It was a great costume though. I would say it was worth it. Yeah, a good way to find out you're allergic to face paint. I knew I was allergic to face paint. I was just committed. Right. Fair enough. I've known I was allergic to face paint since I was a kid. I was never allowed to go to face painting booths because I'd get 
allergic reaction. Yeah, interesting. It was really upsetting. I'd have to be like the kid. You get the kids who would get like the full tiger face and I'd be only allowed to get like a tiny little flower on my cheek because that was the only thing my face could handle. Fun facts about me. Can I do a quick plug? Sure. For my band Juno that we've talked about. Oh, your new single. Yeah. Yeah. So incidentally, the day before Halloween this year, uh, our new, new single, single comes out. How spooky. Sorry, I just bumped the microphone. Uh, our new single comes out the Friday for us, um, October 30. It's a single called Tell You. Spooky, spooky. And it's not a very spooky song at all, but still kind of spooky that it came out the day before Halloween. Anyway, that comes out October 30th. That's going to be on Spotify and iTunes and all that lovely stuff. So... Please feel free to check it out because we're really happy with the song. And we'll share links across all the BSC stuff as well because yeah. we love to support our all our side hustles. Yeah, all of our many side hustles yeah. that we partake in. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's really fun because the same day we release a song, we are playing a show for the first time oh, in many, right. many months. Yes. So, Live music. What yeah. is that? It's, um, it's not the same as what it was, but I feel like that's still a ways off. You know, it's still like max capacity, certain amount and people have to sit down and they can't stand up and it's yeah. a bit odd and I don't know how it's going to feel doing it, but it's something, you know, at the least, but it's not yeah. the same, you know, it, it'll be fun. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to have a good time, but it's not the same thing yeah, for sure. at all. You know, you need people standing up and dancing and whatnot. It's just... It's not the vibe. At all. It's not yeah. a vibe. But I'm grateful that, you know, music's happening again. And um, it seems like we're, yeah. we're really on, a, on the cusp of transforming or, you know, making our way back to normality in Australia. I hope so. Quite the opposite in America, apparently. Yeah, it's... Just yeah. crazy. Yeah, like, I don't even know what the fuck is happening there anymore. It's a bit nuts. I do feel very lucky that we're, like, on this little, like, protected island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we, we rag on um, politicians because we can, because they're somewhat... we have the civil liberties to do that. Yeah, Whoop. they're somewhat inadequate at their job, but at least we have other people in the country who are fighting hard to try and solve this issue. Yeah, the American election is super close, I'm pretty sure. Is it really? I think so. I mean, it was super close last time, and no, 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 like close. It's happening soon. Like, I oh, think it's right, November. I think. I'm not yeah. sure. But yeah, good luck. Where I don't know who you support. If you're listening to this show, we would be if we could vote, we'd be voting for Biden. You know. Yeah. Hashtag just uh, democratic things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those. Things where you look at and you go, man, this is just a real shit show of a decision. Yeah. You know? Anyway, we won't get into that. Yeah. We won't drag politics into Exactly. It. You don't come here for that shit. You come here to talk about- Axe-wielding yeah. psychopaths. Can we talk about the intestines being wrapped around the victims of um, the New Orleans lady? Yeah. The, well, like- that was one of the ones where it was potentially farce, but- uh, I have this, I don't know why, because the likelihood of this ever happening to me is slim to none. I have this huge fear of being disemboweled. It just sounds so awful. Terrible, yeah. Like, 
Because you would stay alive for a while. Yeah, and you have to see your body being your pulled out of you. intestines, not inside you. Yeah. Something that is most definitely supposed to remain in you. Yeah. Not in you anymore. Yeah. It's not a vibe. I don't. I think it's the fact that you never get to see it. It's just, it's there. But you don't see it. You know it's there. But once it's pulled out of you, it's like, that shouldn't be there. Yeah. That should not be there at all. That was like when I when I was six and I broke my arm really bad. Mm. So I've only ever broken one thing in my life. But when I do something in my typical type A personality, when I do something, I do it properly. So I broke my arm in three different places at the same time. And then the bone snapped downwards in like a V shape. And then it looked like I had a banana in my arm. And I just remember in my six-year-old brain like – because you go into shock, so I I don't remember it hurting at first. Like, mm. your body just pumps you with so much adrenaline, it doesn't start to hurt for maybe like an hour or so afterwards. But I just remember looking at my arm and being like, well, that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> like, Yeah. I, my, when I broke my arm, I also don't remember it hurting. I remember the initial pain of breaking it that hurt. But then afterwards, it's like, again... Your body goes into shock so I remember quickly. crying, but like I was also six years old. And when you're very young, you kind of cry for the attention of your parents. I don't like, think I cried. I think I genuinely had a panic attack over how fucked up my arm looked, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would panic as well, looking at that. Um, I, told, I was telling you about my dad had a very serious injury when he was younger... Um, this is before the age of is putting. You ran into the door. This is before the age <laughs> of putting markers on glass doors to show that they're glass doors. So my dad was running around with one of his friends inside and wanted to run outside to the back porch area oh, and didn't Ugh. realize a glass door was closed and ended up running through the glass door. Nope. And nope. Nope. fell nope. over. Nope. The glass shattered everywhere. Nope. Looked down nope. at his leg and nope. the like almost uh, the entirety no, of his stop shin it. area. No. Stop it. It was torn open. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Uh, the, one of the funniest things, I think, I can't recall exactly what he I'm like said. Sal- you know when you get like nervous? I'm like salivating because I'm nervous. Um, I don't like one of the, listening to this. I can't remember verbatim what he said. My dad would be able to tell you better, but um, like the doctor, like the ambulance arrived and they're like trying to calm him down. Um, <laughs> Dad's like crying or whatever he goes. I think he said something like, oh... That doesn't look too good, does it? Like, no shit, You fucking Sherlock. think my Thank leg you. looks like a lasagna. Yeah, that was like, I do remember when I broke my arm because this is worst fucking nightmare for a parent. I was being babysat by someone else's, my friend's parents, Ooh. by the neighbors, and I fucking mangled my yeah, arm. Yeah, you don't, you don't want that. I remember the, like, the dad was trying to tell me that it wasn't broken, it was just dislocated, and I was like... It's in the middle of my forearm. Like what? <laughs> it's it's one bone. Like yeah. what is what exactly do you think is dislocated? From which in there? joint is it dislocated? The one in the middle of your fucking arm? Yeah, is it? like it's one solid bone. Yeah. What do you? I. What are you trying to? I mean, I'm six. I'm not stupid. Thank you, doctor, who's actually a mechanic. Yeah, he was like a. He was an English teacher at a Catholic school. I'm oh, sure if I of course, Lovely yeah. people. Lovely people. But, uh, yeah, English, I don't English know if teachers. he genuinely thought it was... Or if he was just trying to make me feel better. Probably. But I just remember looking and being like... I, I, I would probably say the same thing to a kid freaking the fuck out. I'd be like, oh, don't worry. It's just a... 
You put a band aid on it, you'll be fine. Just pop it back into place. Yeah, here we go. Let's do it now. Oh, no. <coughs> uh, stop. No. Stop it now. Spooky Halloween. <laughs> Past injuries. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up because it's very late for us. And Tama has to go to work tomorrow. We I do. don't. Laura, you have a job. I have a job. You have a job now. Next Monday, I Finally. start. I'm so excited to have a purpose again. <laughs> yeah. Back to a schedule. Hashtag yeah. too real. Yeah, it was too weird. It, uh, this whole situation... Um, it's just been crazy. This whole COVID year is so it's just strange. It's going to be, I always think how weird COVID is going to be to look back on in like 10 years. Yeah. Be like, remember how weird that was? Or we could, in 10 years, it could still be around and the world could be fucked. Who knows? Well, the thought is that it's going to become the new flu and that yeah, you basically- like seasonal flu. Yeah. Like, which- Like you get it and just like hope you don't die. It, well, if that's the case, it it's killing fewer people than- the regular flu does. So then is it a matter of like, does it happen as well as the flu or does it overtake the flu? Well, like, the, so that from my understanding is the difference between COVID and the regular flu is yes, the like the percentage of, so the mortality rate with COVID is lower. But it infects more but people. it's way more contagious mm. from my understanding. So therefore overall it ends up killing a much larger portion yeah, of people. Because, because you're it spreading it around much lot. more easily yeah. rather than flu, which is crazy because it's like, how then do you ever get rid of that? Yeah. I don't it, think, like, I don't it, think, I think until I reckon it's going to be until we have a vaccine. Yeah. True. It'll Very true. Around. Which vaccines take a long time. To do them properly, yeah. yeah. That's like when they were talking about like having a vaccine in like two months' time. I was like, I'm not like, fucking fuck. taking that shit. Like, like you do know the first smallpox vaccine, they rolled it out way too quickly and like people got real sick. Like, I will happily take one in like two years' time, but no, I'm not mm. fucking putting something that's not been road tested properly. No, it's just such you. a shit thing. Like, I can't believe it's happened. It's just, just like so crazy. It's a, Our it's a whole life... world changed in less than twelve months. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's it's like it's so bizarre. I, I'm trying to find things to, you know, there's nothing to it compare to. it to. There's nothing. A global thing, aside from like the world wars. The closest thing for us would probably be nine eleven, maybe because it changed so much of how. Security and airport yeah, that security. is very true. Yeah, um, um, that's, and- but even that's not really comparable because it didn't. Yeah, it's probably it's the closest thing I can think of in terms of no, a huge kind of like yeah. world shift. It changed in the way, the way airports operate, or yeah. change everything about security. It changed things with how people perceived, you know, countries. Essentially, yeah. it's crazy. That a, a like this something like that, and the same thing. I think that's a very good example because it's the same things happen now. Like this whole epidemic has happened, and it's changed how people perceive China. You know, yeah, what's happening in the in the markets, and well, it's all about media manipulation at the end of the day. Exactly, and the way that they're they're yeah. underselling the numbers and everything. And it's kind of like what is happening yeah. there? What no one the knows. Truth? We'll never know. Yeah. Very scary, but uh, not as scary 
as Halloween 2020, where Spoopy. you probably won't be knocking on people's doors asking for candy. Um, if you yeah, are, be safe, be wear safe. a mask. Wear a mask. De- uh, no, not desensitize. Sanitize. Sanitize. Sanitize everything. Um, yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's so yeah, true. Very you know, different. Very, very different this year. Um, keep your children mm. safe. Keep yourself safe. But thank you for tuning in for another episode. This has been our bumper Halloween Halloween episode, which turned out to be basically the same length as every other episode, but that's okay. We tried. Uh, I don't think I ever want to do two cases in one week again because <laughs> my brain is like Frizzle, a frazzle of mush inside yeah. my skull after researching two cases. Never again. Would not recommend. Can I just quick note before we end? Yes. Did you know that Scream uh, was actually based off of a real murder that happened? Are you sure? Yeah. How sure are you on that? Like certain. Okay. Like the creators of Scream made the movie after something that actually happened. I thought they made it as a commentary on the horror genre. Uh, But it's based off of a natural murder. Well, That's there you what go. I, mean. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that. I don't remember I do the murder. It's, like, like, it's a ripper case, I remember. But I do that's... like Scream, though. We should watch that over the we weekend. Should. Great movie. Um, thanks Great for joining film. us, gang. Um, no code word for this week, but we would love to know Instagram message, Facebook message, tweet us your favorite Halloween slash horror movie. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's rack up a catalog. Films. And we'll we'll all watch them and... Share our thoughts. This is this is this will be our, our little film club, the BSC film club. That would actually be really cute. Then yeah. we start a film club and talk about it in shake and not stir. <laughs> yeah, that would be really cute. We should do that. All right, thanks for joining us, guys. We will see you on Friday for shake and not stir. Shake and not stir. We'll be talking about the Jennifer Pan case, mm-hmm. um, as well as other little. Um, details that we might have missed or things that you guys brought to our attention maybe little cases so tune in don't miss it it's gonna be a good one okay love um, you love you guys and we'll see you next time bye, bye. oh wait we should do it low for Halloween bye, bye. <laughs>